welcome to another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Nermeen, Saria, and Marie to discuss all about generative AI, impacts, benefits, and challenges. But before we get into it, let's work our way around the room with some quick introductions. Nermeen, do you want to go ahead and start things off? Yes, of course. Um, hi, I'm Nermeen. I am a tech program manager at the Liker Group. Um, I have a background in artificial intelligence, um, more focused on deep learning and machine learning. And I'm also on the side, um, the co-founder of Hello Ada, which is a knowledge universe to discover all cool initiatives about tech to get more parents um, into the conversation. Nice. Saria? Yeah, of course. So I am Sadia. I'm a delivery lead at Accenture Technology, and my background for the last 10 years has been in both technology and consulting. I'm personally an engineer, and I just love to talk about all things to do with technology and work and improvement. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to this. Perfect. Thanks, Sadia. And finally, Murray. Yeah, cool. Hi. Uh, so my name is Marie. I work as a uh, senior data science consultant at Implement Consulting Group. I have a background in mathematical modeling and computation uh, and have uh, been working in consultant as a consultant for the past five years with uh, with all things data, but uh, especially this last uh, eight months or so, uh, very much around generative AI. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, a Knowledge Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Perfect. Thank you. So, great. Let's get stuck into it. Um, firstly, let's discuss as a bit of an intro, what actually was it that sparked the hype around Gen AI? So, why do you think everyone's so obsessed with it? Do you want to start off, Saria? Of course. So... Uh, well, needless to say, ChatGPT started it all, but I think it's it sort of stems from a place where all of us, even the people that aren't fans of sci-fi, grew up with this idea of the trope of sci-fi. And suddenly overnight, this entity came up that can uh, think for itself, it can talk for itself. And it's basically, one, on the one side, it's a super cool novelty, right? It's like the movies. But also on the other hand, I think... Biologically, as humans, we are built to follow the path of least resistance. We are built to do to want to do less. And I think something that is this strong that promises to automate a lot of our lives, you know, like thinking us, is uh, very attractive. So I think this is this is what I think. It's the fantasy aspect, but also it's very biological for us to be interested in something like this. Yeah, I think maybe also the fact that ChatGPT came and it was in the hands of everyone. So this was not a solution that was developed for some specific task. It wasn't a solution where it's just a data scientist of a specific team that was trying to figure out what were the applicable use cases for it. All of a sudden it was in the hands of the marketing people, of the communications people, of you know IT, and everybody had a sense of, of trying this new technology within the realm of their own work 
um, and uh, and and that also just sparked the innovation of this uh, to a whole new degree because. Of course, people in uh, HR have very, very different ideas of how you can use this than a person developing this algorithm would have uh, thinking about what an HR person might uh, be uh, be using it for. Yeah, I think also maybe, <laughs> a little, I don't know if this is the correct way of saying it, but I think as humans, we are pretty lazy. And this is the first time that uh, we are achieving something that is actually realistic, that is starting to become a little bit more human-like in the way that the content that we can get out now, both like images, art, music, text, all of it are starting to replicate a lot more of our human um, like traits. And I think that makes it more attractive because now we can actually use them as virtual assistants or actually use them to complement our workforce. Whereas before it was always had that touch of a robotic element to it, which was like, oh, we cannot actually use that for our work because it's it's too dumb. Whereas now it's actually getting closer to becoming almost an intern for us. And you can ask it to help you formulate a text or create that image and I think that also makes it very attractive and I think maybe that's what also sparked the hype because we were like oh great I can all these smaller tasks that I want to do whether it's professionally or personally I can just ask them to help me and I actually will get like a decent response now whereas before we could not so I think the fact that it's much more realistic also adds a lot of excitement to it. I think obviously amidst all the excitement um there are going to be challenges, which is why we, we've we decided to have a discussion on this topic today. Of course, there's benefits. We'll discuss those as well. Um, but but sometimes these kind of things could get in the wrong hands. There are some things that people need to be aware of, which is why we want to have a chat about it today. So let's get started and talk a little bit more about its impact on society. So how do you foresee Gen AI affecting modern society, both positively and negatively, of course? So Marie, do you want to start off? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's something that we talk about a lot, right? Because it's um, it's the balance between having a technology that's as hyped as generative AI and then still having sort of realistic outlooks on what will be the impact on society. But I truly believe that there's something behind, you know, behind all of the hype. And, I, and I'm seeing economists kind of uh, comparing it to a general purpose technology right like we know it from electricity for example um so so i i think that look 10 years ahead is going to be so uh ingrained in in a lot of different uh, tasks and and organizations and just like the core of how we do things the core and how we we work going forward. It's going to be, as you were saying, I mean, there's going to be these assistants and we're going to have, uh, you know, it's equivalent to having a thousand assistants um, and and they're on call all the time. So um, so as from a societal point of view, I think that we will uh, in in very few years look back and have a before and after uh, the, the kind of the emergence of, of generative AI. Yeah. Nermain, what are your thoughts? Um. I think I completely agree with Marie, and um, at the same time, I think there's there's some pretty like fundamental issues already with how we are developing AI, not just uh, generative AI, but it is built by a pretty uh, similar group of people. So obviously, the unconscious bias that we all have are all going to get in, and I think there's a lot of um, biases that gets into 
uh, a lot of the AI solutions that we see today. Um, I think that's one of the bigger ethical concerns. And that's also why a lot of um, examples from ChatGPT, but also from MidJourney, from all of them, are, are have a sense of sexist or politically biased element to it. And if we can't even solve at that level, and we have a lot of great research on how to, to counter algorithmic bias, then I think we're already off to a really bad start because I think obviously there's that's like a fundamental thing that we should uh, at least identify and try to do something about. And then obviously there's the whole like impact on our society and how now obviously it's not generative AI, but like with the introduction of Tesla and self-driving cars, we were like, okay, well, what happens when there's an accident? And I think a lot of those similar use cases will start also pop into our society because we realize, oh, there's new use cases and new risks associated with it, and we don't know who is accountable. We don't have any framework that is actually enforced right now, and a lot of regulations are talking about it in Europe, also different ones in the U.S. and other countries, but there is no one to be held accountable, whilst at the same time we haven't even solved the fundamental thing of, hey, our solution's a bit biased because we only have... I'm sorry, white men usually on the teams. Um, and that's that's a different issue, right? But it's also, if we can't even solve that, then how are we going to be ready to to actually um, tackle all of the things and the risks that are going to come our way afterwards? A fun, uh, kind of a fun comment to that, because I totally agree. There's something about like the the core of these models. And of course, there's going to be bias in it because the data that they're training on is biased because we as humans are biased. It's, it's like an evolutionary uh, mechanism that we develop because we need that shortcut in our brains, right? And then we have to actively fight against it. Um, and I just saw a uh, I saw someone uh, that tested ChatGPT, at least in the very beginning, to see where on the political spectrum that it, it, it was falling. And it, um, it was uh, around the average kind of opinions of, of people from San Francisco. And that just so clearly shows how big an impact it has, the people developing these models, what they might not know that they're putting into it of, yeah, unconscious uh, biases, just as a kind of an under underline on, the, on that point. I mean, because I think it's super important. And I, I have a lot to add to that, but I know that <laughs> other topics are coming on that. So I want to kind of talk about the challenges, right? I think you you guys really touched on really important things. So to take it a bit further, I think AI is a very double-edged sword. Like any new technology, I mean, think of the atomic bomb, right? Like it's a big thing. It was not developed to, to do war. And I think anything that is this powerful comes with extreme positives, but also extreme negatives. And from where I see it, I see it that the extreme positives are going to be for like the 1% of brains. And I'm talking extreme. So for example, the benefit we're going to see in medicine and computer science and any and in space technology and anything that is very knowledgeable, it is a power that is to be, you know, it's it's amazing. But I also th think that when we say society, I do the air quotes, that makes me think of the 8 billion people on earth. And when I think of that, when I think of the lay person on earth, I personally have the, I don't think it's a pessimist approach. I think it's more of a realist approach. I look back at social media and I see how our attention has dropped. And I look at something that is this strong with not much boundaries given to every single person without a guidance of how to use it or what it is. Uh, I am I think the abuse of power, the more going towards believing fake news without even questioning it, um, and 
the main point that I worry about is the reliance on outsourcing our brain function, basically. So we're we're going to get to a point where it's making us more and more and more reliant on it and less on our own brain function. Now, in perfect world, you know, when the Industrial Revolution happened, you're not doing something because now you're focusing on doing something more important. But I worry that this technology has gone so fast from zero to a gazillion that we're not going to be able to adapt that fast. Uh, and I think this is the main challenge that is a more of a big picture challenge, not something that we, I don't think we can tackle this ourselves overnight. So, yeah. Yeah. I suppose that can bring us into the topic of education because obviously, I mean, schools are going to have to start talking about it because people are going to have to start using it in their careers throughout everything. So let's go on to that topic then and how can generative AI be integrated into education and what are the potential benefits and challenges that would be associated with this? Sorry. Yeah, I think maybe the first thing about that question is uh, just to integrate it into education, right? Because if we're saying that this is a technology that's going to be present in everything going forward, um, it should be part of the education, even though it also comes with kind of the risk of, as you're saying, Saria, you're kind of outsourcing your uh, your your brain power in a sense. But but I really really put a lot of trust into uh, the the educational sector to find a way where we can use this as a tool. I know it's kind of a silly comparison, but and I've seen it a lot. But the whole comparison to the calculator, right? So saying, okay, now we got we got a new technology that could do something that we previously, you know, we studied in school and we sat and we calculated by hand and now we had this uh, this calculator, will we then never be able to know math anymore because we just have this by the hand? And, and certain things have been lost in that process. I, I think that maybe like calculating uh, by hand is not a thing that a lot of people do anymore with like just the, the simple things, but we have not lost the ability to do math or perform math, right? We have we have kind of elevated that to the next level. And I think there's a really big task in then integrating this technology, both so that our students and, and people going through the educational system get a chance to have hands-on experience with this technology that will be part of the organizations that they they come out into or the world that they will be part of afterwards. Um, but doing it in a way so that you don't lose your critical sense. Because I think one of the things that I can kind of worry about in that setting is if you can, how how do you make sure that you you're critical towards what you um what you kind of generate with the with these models, and um and make sure that you have kind of your analytical sense around it because if you want to make an analysis of something, it that is especially where you you go in and you um you learn a lot about the the topic that you're looking at in that process. But right now we can get that analysis and we get it as key uh, bullet points because we're just asking chat GPT and then we're asking it to structure it as a table and then we put it right into the report, right? And we barely have to even look at it and then make our own kind of opinions around it. Um, so I see that as, as kind of a, a challenge, but not one that I don't think the educational sector can can solve by just redefining how we integrate into um, to education. Uh, I think I'll kind of I'll bounce off of that. I think I, I can make it up into three points. The first point is our educational system hasn't really been revamped for 150 years, even wherever in the world. And I've 
I've personally lived in so many different places, so different in even the privilege that they have from like the depth of Africa to Scandinavia right now. And I can tell you, it has not been revamped even in the best of nations. And I think this is going to force us to strong arm us to revamp our educational system. Otherwise, the abuse that a 16 year old, not knowingly, but just wanting the path of least resistance, right? Because we're born lazy, mm. our neurons want to be lazy. This is so easy to abuse. And I think the first point I want to make is that you have two parts where to start with a sort of negative, but like the reality, the first part you have the nations or the countries that still have a very traditional educational system that does not depend on you thinking, but rather you are punished if you don't get something right. And you sort of just want your d doctor, professor, teacher to get off your back, basically. So you're just not taught to care about what you're getting as an output. So then in that case, as you said, Mary, we'll go in, say, answer this question for me, give it to me as a table, and then I'll put it in the, and I'll get an A or a B or whatever, just let them leave me alone. And then the other extreme where nations that are way less, that are pressuring way less on education because they want to drop stress, back to my air quotes, I also think that's a negative in the sense that these people will probably not question much. So it, even though they might not use Gen AI, but then they might feel like they will believe anything given to them because they trust a higher power or they trust someone who's above them. They're not pushed to push themselves to an extreme because that might be perceived as too stressful. So I think the middle ground here would bring us beautiful results because the way in our domains in computer science, I think Gen AI is a godsend because the problems that it can create for you and help you solve. My partner was a doctor at university teaching computer science. And the first thing he thought was, my God, the problems, you know, like, or the homework I can come up with that is super fun, super entertaining in computer science. Another thing that is literature, right? It can create worlds that we can't even think of or things that we don't think of like history. History majors are using it to draw patterns in things that seemingly are not related in the past, but Gen AI can kind of find patterns between them. And then we discover secrets that we didn't even think we could. So I think these are all benefits, but the main cornerstone is that the educational system will benefit from it the second it upgrades to meet it. Because as you said, it's a new tool, we need to meet it. And if we do, it has massive benefits. It will reshuffle our minds from, you know, thinking overnight, what homework can I give my students to what is it that I want them to solve? And then the machine can create that homework for them, basically. I also think more fundamentally, <laughs> the whole purpose of education is to equip students with the knowledge and skills to actually be ready for the economy uh, of the future. And I think we are all very aware how AI is so such a big part of our society. It's growing more and more uh, integrated with everything that we are touching, that we are working with, and all of the the jobs. I think I don't remember the report, but there was a report saying that all of the jobs of the future haven't even been created right now. So the next generations are still gonna be more and more, um, at, at least like. Uh, forced to learn these things. And I think if the education system decides to not partake in that, and they have to go out in the wild internet and learn all of these by themselves, that is a little bit like disappointing them and letting them down because I think that's where you should learn all of these, whether it's going from learning how to use generative AI in a, in, in a manner that makes sense so that you use it in a framework so you can actually utilize it in a smart manner but also testing that knowledge afterwards in new ways of a little bit going back to what Marie and also Saria has said. I think when the, the calculator got introduced, yes, that was great because now we could do 
more complicated math problems. So they actually got smarter, didn't get stupider. And I think it's the same thing that's going to happen with, with Gen AI. We're just going to make it more complex so that we can optimize even more our human brains. I think just a little we're, we're as humans, just as we are lazy, I think we also go completely in panic mode every time something requires us to change something because we're really comfort zone uh, animals. Um, but yeah, I think that's what I want to add. I think all the both of them summarize it pretty well. Yeah, I think maybe also it's just, I mean, as you're both saying, there's the difference between having kind of the passive adoption of this technology versus the active adoption of it, right? So if we're doing nothing and we're just letting it be a part of our education, then we risk all of the negative side effects from it. But if we're actively, as as both of you are, are kind of talking about, go in and, and redefine what should education be in this new um, way of, of working with something like Gen AI, um, then we have the, the potential to, to get all of the beautiful kind of benefits from it. So I'm curious. So let's think about university students. Obviously, this is more of a negative side to it. People could be using it for their their coursework, the assignments where it's not like you're in an exam hall, things like that. Is there already or do you think there will be a way where they'll be able to figure out if someone has used chat GPT and things like that? So you know how we figured out how to tell when people have plagiarized and things like that. Do you think there'll eventually be a technology for that kind of thing? Well, there are already technologies yes. that are doing stuff like that. But I think that's also going a little bit in the wrong direction because hmm. that's basically shadow banning ChatGPT by trying to see if ChatGPT has been used. Of course, ChatGPT is going to be used because it's optimizing the way that we're going to be working. So I think that is not necessarily the way we should be going of like, oh, have you used ChatGPT? Bad student. I think mm -hmm. that's a little bit of direction, at least that the media discourse is going. And I think that some universities have, have started introducing some of the technologies um, to be able to detect if ChatGPT has been used. But that's that's not at all. I think going back a little bit to the comment earlier, I think it's about revising the education system and changing it. Sorry, I just said very well earlier, we haven't done anything new. We're constantly doing the same homeworks. And that's maybe the bigger problem is not, hey, have you used ChatGPT? It is your, your problems are not complex enough and ChatGPT can solve them. That's yeah. a little bit the, the way we should look at it. And I think I think the one... I think as Nirmi saying, there is software coming up. And I think from from one perspective, it's good, right? They need to come combat it, quote unquote, in a way. But what I think is, and this is why I say realist, not pessimist, because if we learn anything from social media, we know, and this is documented, humans do not go as fast as technology. And this mm -hmm. does have detrimental things, right? Like that happened to our societies. But I think in a perfect world, the specialist needs to become more specialized because as we once dis discussed offline, Shannon, I mean, the chat GPT is very good at mimicking, right? And even like mid-journey, whatever it is. And, and I'm, I'm someone who paints. So I'm going to give an example. I'm someone who paints and I've done it since I was a kid. I could tell if it's an AI generated painting because of the strokes, not even the missing fingers. Let's say it's perfect. I can tell from the strokes. So I think it's gonna it's going to push us to direction where we are more specialized in what we are. Because look at it this way, a med student asking ChatGPT to solve their homework. Yeah, they might go on with a B. And you know, if they're not perfectionist, they might not care if they get an A as long as they graduate. But that is a doctor of the future. And that is scary if you put it that way. So I think our parameters 
for at least the risky majors in life, they will need to upgrade. Otherwise, we will not survive because there are things that this AI, these machines can do way better than us. But then if we don't have ways to detect the faults, not to tear them down, as Nermin saying, I don't tear down a machine for assembling a car. I just devise a system to find the error there and try to fix it, right? So I think this is the one way that we need to move forward. But I do, I also personally see that the way we're moving is more about, as you put it, shadow banning Gen AI rather than upskilling ourselves to identify when that student took the lazy way out and decided to write their dissertation on Macbeth using chat GPT, you know, <laughs> and chat GPT mistook Macbeth for Hamlet, for example, like you could tell these. Yeah. So yeah, I think we need to up our game so that we are more intelligent at the end of the day than the AI. Yeah, I think we always have conversations in the office. We like to be able to, to well, we think we know if we can tell if a LinkedIn post has been created on ChatGPT or not. And the phrase top notch, if that's ever in a LinkedIn post, 100% GPT. Who actually says that? Um, anyway, should we move on? I know, Nermeen, you discussed it a little bit already about the data bias and discrimination that can be involved in these kind of things. Um, so it is often the data that's used to train these AI models. How can we tackle something like this, an issue like this? And what are the consequences of not addressing it? Saria, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the only way to, let's kind of take a step back, right? It's an AI model. It's not a sentient being. It's not a human. Mm -hmm. So it's not thinking for itself. And arguably, a lot of the humans nowadays don't think for themselves because social media is making them think right, the way it wants it. So, And that's an algorithm. That's an AI already, even though we don't think of it that way, right? Social media is an AI. And I think the first thing is that realizing that it's a machine and this is how we we affect what it does at the end of the day. So I think the first thing that we shouldn't do is censor it because other because censoring in all its ways, like nowadays with the problems that are happening, some parts of the world are being censored when they shouldn't be. So I think censoring the AI is not the way it is. However, initiatives to create better data sets and to dig up data sets in other parts of the world, even years ago, 10, 15 years ago, Google was trying to do that, right? Because if you Google something, you often get, it's, it's even very basic algorithm, but you get very niche results. AI is more powerful, but it's the same thing. So I think more and more we should push to get data sets from more marginalized minority groups and like pay them, encourage them to gather these data sets and feed it to the AI, because that is the one of the main ways that we will get this AI to shift and stop producing results that are unethical or biased or discriminatory. Because again, it's not thinking for itself. It's not doing it on purpose. And you can't unteach an AI. This is one thing that most people don't know. Once an AI absorbs an information, you can't unteach it. This is the domain of itself in AI that scientists are trying to come up with ways to make an AI forget. An AI cannot forget. So the only way to do it is to teach it more and to correct its compass, basically. But I don't know, Nirmeen, because you this is basically what you do. So maybe you have input on this. I think um, before I complete your answer to steps, uh, I think it's worth also thinking we're already I think a lot of us know what the steps are and there's a lot of research on it. And I think the main reason we are not taking no steps is because I think especially in the R&D world, all tech world, we are so obsessed with the idea that innovation needs to happen now, it needs to happen fast, we need to move fast and break things. And 
all of those mottos that all the big tech guys, uh, Facebook, Google, and all those have said. And I think it might also be needed that we need to revisit the way we think about R&D and innovation, because for those steps to happen, whether it's using the bias mitigation techniques or even going and looking for for new ways of getting data and incorporating everyone so no one is left behind, we need more time. We need to go out and do more and we cannot move as fast. And I think that is maybe the first step that I see happening is that we need to stop thinking that everything needs to move fast and that if we do anything regulatory or do anything to make this less biased, we need to move slower and people are like, oh, but then innovation cannot happen. Innovation can still happen if we move responsibly and don't leave anyone behind. But we just need to accept that it will move a bit slower. So I think maybe Marie wants to talk a little bit more about the actual steps, but I was just, I think that's maybe the first step that I see personally uh, needs to be done. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting point because I think, um, I think if everybody collectively agreed that that was the way to go, then that could work, right? But if 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 just you know one or two are not doing that, and then they're pushing forward uh, with the with a with a different speed, um, and then they might be be creating something that is you know going to market quicker. They get all of those experiences quicker. They can iterate on the product product quicker, uh, and then it might be the biased product versus kind of taking it a little bit more slow. I think it's going to be a competitive uh, kind of disadvantage if it's if yeah if unless unless you go in and you say the the mere fact that we actually then have ethical ai as the end result right is such a big value that that it you know we got the competitive advantage even though everything was moving um a bit slower in it but i agree with you that there's definitely um there's the opportunity to uh to come in at different times in the AI life cycle and and kind of take a step back, right? And say, okay, which way direction do we want to go? Um, yeah, I think just before, because yeah. um, I think I think that's maybe also the problem that we are thinking that, oh, well, everyone else is going that way. And then we are all, all tech companies are going the exact same way along. It's like, well, you're moving fast. So we need to move fast. And it becomes a little bit like a cheap farm and we're all trying to like get there because no one is doing anything different. Or there's a few companies that are trying to do things different, but a lot of us are doing the same thing because we're, no one wants, well, I understand completely, because if I was also a, a profit-making company in a capitalistic world, would I really take that risk? It is a gamble, right? But it's a little bit like Apple when you decide to make their microchip. You were doing it for so long and we're like, we don't know if it's going to succeed, but then it succeeded and now you're doing great with it. So I think sometimes we also need a big player one big player to make that move and do something different so that others feel comfortable. Hey, let's try and see it. And maybe that is a much better solution because maybe it will be more profitable. But the thing is right now, I think and that's also what's sad is that no one wants to make that move because we need to react now and we need to be relevant now. And what happens if we are not relevant in five years and AI is not relevant and, you know, technologies keep moving. So maybe AI is not the big thing and maybe VR will come back, you know, so... But yeah, I just wanted to get at that comment, uh, but I'll let you, yeah. you wanted to say something more. No, no, but I, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's such a, it's such an interesting um, discussion around kind of like the speed of things, because I think there's also, um, what are you, one thing is just talking about, like, if you do things a little bit slower, it's a little bit more deliberate, right? So maybe trying to put some words into what is it that we're actually gaining 
if we have that extra time, right? And then what we might be gaining with that extra time is is the ability to gather a data set that is more kind of uh, representative of, of kind of uh, a vast majority of uh, of people. So we have a data set that's uh, that's less biased, and that goes into the foundation of how we build these models, for example. And then there's the whole process of training the model, and a lot of uh, a lot of kind of the uh, the time that goes into it right now is in in the alignment process of the models. So it's in this process where we're trying to make sure that the models are uh, giving outputs that are kind of corresponding to the values that we want them to correspond to, that they are not saying something that is illegal and all of that. And this is kind of a human in the loop, at least for a lot of the different ways that we're training these models, where you, you sit and you evaluate whether or not the output of this um, model kind of it lives up to um to the values that we uh, that we wanted to uh, to have and, and more time allows us to have more time to make that process because it is a timely process and i think from the bias point of view that is also the process where it's super important that it's bias or it's um diverse teams that are part of that process right because you put so much of uh your own human kind of knowledge into it uh in that process so just making sure that you know, you have the time to uh, to get a diverse team into um, to that part of the life cycle. I think it's also important. So, I mean, I know that we've touched on it um, a little bit about the ethical considerations and maybe some of the the different things that have already been happening to to help make it a little bit better. But are there any other notable initiatives or steps that are being taken for ensuring that it's developed and used in a more ethical way? I think when when ChatGPT came out, particularly, we keep going back to it because it was like the milestone, right? Yeah. And I remember saying, you know, that's this is like a telephone, this is like a microwave. We we got to a point where we're like, oh yeah, you know, this thing happened. It's super cool, but no, this is that much of a big thing. It's it's the car, it's the wheel, it's like a big thing. But I think one thing that was pushed uh, was stopping and going back to near me, stopping development for six months so that legislation and policies are put in place. And I think there are other things happening, but I think that struck us because it was on such a global scale and it was so talked about everyone on Twitter that doesn't even know what AI does apart from asking it a question or responding, right? Like they were like, oh yeah, you know, and people had such polar opinions, you know, like, no, you can't stop it. It's wrong. When I think it is hundred percent one of the things that I truly supported because going back to the fact that this is, go, go back 10 years ago. I mean, I, I don't even think 10 years ago for some countries, GDPR. Without GDPR on social media or on emails, our lives would be something else completely. And we take that for granted. Most, the again, going back to the lay person, right? And not any person on the street who doesn't work in digital marketing or tech doesn't know what GDPR is. But it is literally the, the lid that's keeping all hell from breaking loose for people. And we saw the danger of breaking GDPR or like the scariness of G breaking GDPR when COVID happened, when in some countries, people started getting text messages telling them you're hundred meters out of, out of your house, go back home. And that's very big brother, right? Like it's, it's it, going back to my first comment, sci-fi, you read about this in books and it feels so surreal living it. So taking that into the context of AI, this is why we say stop six months. And as you mean saying, you need to take a step back, but I don't even think, I think it's going to fast become bigger than just the, just like, you know, uh, innovation. Because when we talk about AI hallucinations, Nirmin, you mentioned that once before, it's like, you know, AI is, is, 
inventing things about real people that are incriminating. AI right now, if OpenAI was completely, I know there are plugins open to the internet, but if OpenAI, OpenChatGPT, the newest version, to the internet, that is cataclysmic because it can access everything from your CPR number, what is whatever is attached to it, your bank accounts, your medical, it has no borders, nothing can stop it. Anything that exists on the internet, it can access. And people do not understand how massive that is. Everything in your life, it can literally create a new Shen that can talk, can speak, has everything in your life about you. Some things that you probably forgot because it's on Facebook 2012, like 2006, and it will create a new one and it will steal your identity. Or it can incriminate you, Marie, and say you did this heinous crime. And it will be convincing because people aren't asking questions. So I think this this thing that's happening where we need to take a step back and do this equivalent of a GDPR ethical policy for AI is very important. And also back to this tidbit that I said that most people do not know unless they're in the career. AI doesn't forget. You can't remove because the neural networks, we don't know how they work. So we can't trace a piece of information back and be like, you know, control, delete, remove from trash. You know, like we can't do that. So we can override, but we can't make it forget. So if ChatGPT can access my bank account, what I can do tomorrow is put an inhibitor in place for it to stop accessing my bank account, but it will still remember how to access my bank account. So this is why, and I, to answer your question, Chen, I know that that was put in place and that world nations were voting on it and big, like, big uh, CEOs in the world were voting yes or no. And I personally think, as Sadia, in my humble opinion, this is something that we should say yes to. And even for more than six months, uh, we're humans become greedy and want more super fast. Already, ChatGPT is a massive thing that we're getting. I don't think anything's going to happen if they stop it for a year and put things in place for it. Um, yeah, so that's my monologue on, on it. I think there's also, I think, like, I completely agree. I think there's a lot of already ethical initiatives, like every. Every tech company right now has a responsible AI team. Microsoft has one. Facebook has one. Google. Everyone has just recently started really launching those. And I think they are doing steps to ensure that we don't amplify harmful biases or ethical um, risks. Um, but I think a little bit also in line with what Saria is talking about, I think we need to be much more engaged in public education about what it is and what it does, because what you just mentioned, and not a lot of people know, you don't understand it when it goes into near network, it's like, it's really hard to like trace it back. People don't know that we need them to also participate in helping identify those biases that you need to give us feedback because it becomes a little bit, oh, we did something and we need to figure out the the problems and the mistakes, but we need the public to tell us too, because when it goes out there, it's really hard to control. So I think it's also educating people about what it is and how it impacts them. So they also know what you're saying yes or no to. And then similarly, also asking them to contribute to it becoming more ethical, because what does ethical mean, right? Like we're talking, but we're all in the West right now. I think if we we ha we have made the mistake with social media and the internet when it really started of not including the next billion users, which are not in the West. Um, so I think it's also a little bit thinking in how is it that we define these things and how is it that we gain get feedback back from the general public around it because they are the ones that are the most impacted and because at the end of the day we are all tech savvy and understand what's happening, so we are much more mindful 
of how we're using it, but people are not as mindful. So someone might just put in their bank information into ChatGPT and not know what it means and then be impacted about it in a few years. Not that ChatGPT will do something right now, but it's just more of like we need to educate people so that you know what you're saying yes or no to and so that you're aware of what are the implications um, on their lives. Yeah, I think from my point of view, I think it's such a difficult discussion. The whole um, is the speed of development and the gain from uh, from having kind of a pause in the in the development, because I think it should be very mindful around what is it that we are then using that pause for, right, is to get a better understanding of how how we want to design the world with AI and then have clearer rules and what we think is is right and what is wrong. Um, but a lot of that stuff is kind of emerging as we're seeing the development of AI because we're seeing what it is being capable of doing. And sometimes it's a difficult task to kind of hypothesize around the way that the development can go, right? So I think one of the really important things is to have the conversations to continuously be aware that, of course, there are risks associated with the technology and we need to continuously talk about it so that we can steer the kind of the further um, further development. And then also just as a as a um, comment towards regulation, because I think you're completely right. And also, as we saw with GDPR, and it's a super difficult area because the development of AI is moving so quickly and legislation usually doesn't move in the same pace. Right. Um, but we are seeing the AI Act from EU coming out and it will be coming into play um, by the end of this year that has some pretty significant uh, it, it's doing like a risk-based approach towards AI, looking at what is the actual risk of the solution or the system that I want to put into play. And that kind of feeds into different requirements for then developing um, that system. And then I think it's a, it's a really important step towards trying to put up some regulation in um, in, in just yeah working with, the, with AI in a responsible way so that it doesn't become, become completely out of control. So I think another one, another topic that we wanted to discuss is maybe what kind of loss we get from from all of this happening. Um, so do you think people often don't realize what they are losing when they rely heavily on these kind of technologies? Well, uh, I, I think... Oh, go sorry, on. go for it. There you go. Okay. I think there's, there's the, the... I think you touched upon it in the, uh, in the beginning, actually, Saria, but I think we're entering into a world right now where... Um, we're losing a lot of human creativity um, and we are creating an artificial world where fake news and voice phishing are becoming more of the norm because we have created such a realistic technology and we have lost a little bit the distinction between human touch and human touch, you know, and quotation. And I think that's a bit scary that we're people not realizing that we're just making it even more confusing to be human nowadays, because I saw this research that was showing that they were comparing um, a doctor giving answers uh, to patients and then chat GBT or our language learning model. I don't I don't remember which of them that was giving uh, answers and they couldn't figure out um, which like they said the language learning model seemed more empathetic. So we are starting to enter a moment where I get going back. Sorry, what you were saying. It's not a sentient human being. It's 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 just it's a, a machine. But we're entering a, a a situation where people are not distinguishing it anymore because it's becoming very good at replicating a lot of our human traits. And I think that is diminishing our whole sense of authenticity of our human experience. All of those things, which was 
ours. And now it's really hard to call it ours because apparently we can replicate it. And I think people are starting to get a hang of it. But I think not fully, because when you also just see like in the news and everything, it's really hard to to like when journalists are now coding stuff, are you coding something that AI created or was it a human creating it? And it's really hard to figure out that balance. Marie, did you have something you wanted to add? Well, my mind is going so many directions now because there's so many uh, there's so many interesting things to uh, to touch upon here because I just I remember um, speaking to my my uh, very creative friend uh, a couple of years ago after she read uh, Yuval Harris I think is uh, the 20, 21 lessons for the twenty first century and I think uh, one of the points he has in the, that book is um, is trying to look ahead and and saying that um, AI will probably be a, a, a dominant factor in in creative uh, work coming up. Is such as music and then arts and I remember having that discussion with her and she was like she just you know she couldn't picture a way where you would lose that sense of creativity that is so inherent a human capability and then you know you fast forward three years and then we have mid-journey and then you're sitting there and then you're good at kind of prompting and then you you get some sort of creativity and yet uh, kind of like as the output um, but I think yeah, I think uh, it also opens up for some possibilities, right? Because it, it gives a it gives also a tool for creativity for people that might not have been able to do um, to do creative things previously. So so you also open up for new uh, capabilities. Um, but but I, I agree with you, and I mean it, it's very um, it can be scary if you really think about that we're losing uh, something that we um, kind of have as a core capability of of being human um but usually when when these things come it kind of it develops what we are capable of i i know that when you know back in the day when the photo like photography became a thing that was also very very ta talked about like the whole like painting industry and making portraits etc right and then now you got a, just a photographer that can take it but you, you just have then two kind of domains of, of creativity and then then came the era where you could just um kind of edit all your photos with with photoshop etc and then then there was a big talk about well that that kind of ruined the ability to to just natively be able to take a good photograph but it just again it created kind of this new discipline um and and i hope for uh, for all of this that that we're just creating a new dimension of our creativity and not kind of extinguishing um some of the creativity that we have as just inherent human. Um, answering the what we will lose thing, this when I saw this question, I was like, yes, with caps. <laughs> I think, I think. Okay, so I need to give this as an, in an example, and this is by no means to say that any generation is less or than the other, but skill-wise. I remember reading this article about millennials versus Gen X and Gen Z, and one thing stuck with me because it is so true. So. The millennials, which comes smack jam in the middle, we're and the extended millennials, so I guess 96 all the way to the early 80s, right? So I think this generation sort of remembers, take it back to school. Uh, I don't know, Marie and Nermin, how old you are, but I am proudly 31. I remember sitting there doing uh, research with my Britannica encyclopedia uh, at like age 10 because I needed to talk about, I remember at the time it was the grizzly bear. And I remember that I had to go through a lot of books to be able to come up with this. And then when when uh, Google came up, right, and it was like dial-up internet patience. So we're losing patience. That's the first thing I need to call 
because dial-up internet tests your patience. Whenever I fly back home, I do not realize how much I've lost patience. But the second thing we gained and then we lost in the coming generation is when we Google, we have a lot of information on our fingertips. But because we had that skill of understanding that you need to go through so many different resources to get what you want, it's bits and pieces from everywhere. It's realizing that, oh, mom, is this like a Britannica from the 90s? Because, you know, it's 2006 now. So it's like there are things that you need to update. So I think millennials got this where we remember the re the usefulness of research. We understand that you need to go through several resources and we don't take it too much for granted. We understand that, you know, this information is all at my fingertips, but I can, that is beautiful because if I'm sitting with my husband and I'm like, oh, you know, what's the difference between a bumblebee and a honeybee? I can Google that and I can look at that. But I think the generation before us is either very skeptical of anything that is online or the opposite because they think, right, internet should be more powerful. So of course it's true. And then the Gen Z generation is not that good at research because they are very much most are aware that there's so much information out there, but there's this fallacy that the availability of information means that you have that information. But that's not true, because even if it's available for you, it doesn't mean you have it. And then, so I think we've lost patience. I think we've lost the ability to research and to critically think, because the last thing I want to say is, and we've been seeing this a lot over the last few years, we think that having this powerful AI managing our lives, by that I mean social media and the news, right? We think that we're seeing, we are able to, yes, see different sides of a coin, but we don't see it. Why? Because the AI learns from you and shows you more of what you want. So I think we are losing this logic that says, if you're seeing this every day, it doesn't mean it's the only thing out there. And I don't think that's better than you not knowing what's out there back in the 80s and 70s and just formulating your opinion. So... I don't know if this comes across, but I think there's this, the transition generations understand that, you know, pre we didn't have this. So you need to still have critical thinking and skepticism, but the generation that's coming, I think this is one good course to add to our educational system where we intentionally teach them criticism, critical thinking, and skepticism to question anything that they see particularly moving into a world that is going to be VR. So everything you see won't even be real. Uh, but yeah, but that's my that's my two cents. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. So, I mean, this topic as a whole is something everyone will be very much interested in. Everyone's using it. Um, but I think one of the most important takeaways from today is that everyone needs to educate themselves because it is a big thing. It's going to be around for, well, for a while at least, forever. And it's going to be used more and more for everything. So I'm sure we could talk for much longer on the subject, but we'll have to leave it there for today. So thank you so much, ladies, for sharing your insights on today's topic. As always, it's been lovely chatting with each of you, Nermeen, Saria and Marie. So thank you, everyone else, for listening. And if you would like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time on the Evolution Exchange. Thank you.